5, verses 1 through 14. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after he has suffered, suffered a little while, will himself restore you, who called you to, um, to make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, stands with you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You walk into a room and you forget why you are there. That's happened to you before, right? I hope I'm not the only one. I'll go to get something somewhere in my house. Along the way, my mind gets thinking about other things, as Sarah will tell you I'm apt to do. And by the time I get to where I've needed to go, I've forgotten why I was going there at all. Now, fortunately, I usually have good reasons for going where I go, and uh, by taking a look around, I can bring the reason back to mind. It's a rather silly phenomena, but it, it's only silly insofar as it's unimportant. Forgetting you went to the pantry to grab syrup is no big deal. The trouble is we tend to forget more important things, too. We're reminded of our purpose, our calling on a Sunday morning, but we forget it during the week. We decide to follow Jesus, to surrender all, but like a hunting dog, our eyes get off our master when a squirrel crosses our path. Rather than recollecting our purpose, we, we might change our purpose, even while we're standing in the right room. This tragically happens to many churches. People who say they surrender all to Jesus begin to claw back something for themselves. Pride and self-interest divide and destroy the church. And this can even happen to pastors. And as Peter concludes his first letter here in chapter 5, he addresses that possibility by speaking to the elders among his audience. Now when Peter's talking about those who are elders, he's talking about men in the church, who are serving as leaders of the church, and generally speaking, they would tend to be older. Um, the two tend to go hand in hand, that those who are mature in the faith tend to be older. Though that's not exclusively the case. You have someone like Timothy, who is younger, probably a, a man about my age, 
Um, and so it wasn't just like for those who were just all gray-haired, but it just tended to be the case that those were the elders. Those were the overseers. That's another term for elder, overseers of the church. That term's used quite a bit in First Timothy and also in Titus. And when you think about elders of the church, you shouldn't think of only those who um, are occupied in a full-time vocation like myself, but you should also think of people who work other jobs during the week. They can be elders in the church, and while we don't have that as a formal office here, I'd love if that, if that was able to come about, but we don't have that as an office here for lay people, but we have sister churches, other Advent Christian churches, where um, people in the pews are serving as elders. And so it's not something that's just for professionals. It's not a, prof- it's not a professional calling. It's a spiritual calling. It's not as though you have to go to seminary to be an elder of a church. So if you do have the opportunity to go to seminary, that, that's, that's great. Um, so Peter is addressing the elders of these churches, the leaders of, of, of these churches, as a fellow elder himself, which is kind of striking because, I mean, you'd say, like, well, Peter's kind of more than just an elder. He's an apostle, perhaps the apostle in the minds of, of many. Um, and yet he, he kind of humbles himself by approaching them as, I'm speaking to you just elder to elder here. This is the way that we need to conduct ourselves as we overlook God's flock. And he, he ties in the experience that he had as a disciple of Christ and witnessing the suffering of Christ and also kind of referring back to the fact that as he shares in the suffering of Christ, as he's witnessed Christ's suffering, so he will share in the glory of Christ, recalling the fact that that's true of all of us. It's not just true of Peter. It's true of all of us, and especially of the elders, that as they, they witness for Christ in their own suffering, they too will share in his glory. And so after kind of narrowing down who he's speaking to, he's speaking to me, he's speaking to other church elders, Peter tells them that they are to shepherd God's flock, that they are to care for the church like a shepherd cares for his sheep. And what Peter's really doing here is recalling his own individual specific call that he received from Jesus after the resurrection of Christ. Now remember, Peter's denied Christ, kind of shamed himself, but after Christ has risen from the dead and he's spending time with his disciples, they are brought back together. And so um, in John 21, verses 15 through 19, they're sitting along the Sea of Galilee. The Apostle John records this is the conversation that happened between Peter and Jesus. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The specific calling that Jesus placed upon Peter and the role that he was to play was that he was to act as a shepherd to feed the sheep of Christ, to feed the lambs of Christ. Not Peter's sheep, it's Christ's sheep. And so Jesus is positioning himself as this head, lead, chief shepherd, but he's he's inviting Peter into that task of, of shepherding his sheep. And notice the motivation behind that task. Peter doesn't, Jesus doesn't call Peter 
to feed his sheep, to care for his sheep, just because Peter just happens to like the sheep. It's all driven by Peter's own love for Christ. If you love Jesus, you will love his sheep. And, and that's not only true of pastors. That shouldn't be only true of pastors. It should be true of the whole church. You can't say that you love Jesus and then hate your brother and sister in Christ. If you love Jesus, you need to love one another. Remember, that's what Jesus says is a mark of us being one of his disciples in John 13. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. In verse 2, Peter says that these elders are to do this, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Now, maybe that seems a little bit of a strange word of instruction because you would think that if someone's doing something, then they must be already willing to do that. You would think that if these elders are serving as elders, they're they're doing it because they want to do it, and that's why they're there. Um, But I can speak from my experience as an elder, as a pastor, and just to kind of pick up on that word pastor, that's just a different word for referring to a shepherd. Pastoral care, you think about a pasture. Um, Overlooking sheep. I, I can speak from my own experience that while there's great freedom in receiving a call to pastoral ministry, because you know what you're supposed to do. I got that call when I was 16. I didn't have to go through a lot of the turmoil some of our other college students have had to go through trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. I knew what I was supposed to do. Um, God revealed it to me in a clear just moment of just absolute clarity. I was supposed to go and be a pastor. There's freedom in that. But there can also be burdens in that. When you, in the course of ministry, go through tough times, maybe disappointments. And I have to say, like I've been super blessed ministering at this church. This is the only church I've ministered at. And uh, you've all been great to me. You've been great to my family. And so I haven't had the experience that sort of hardship. But still, you know, you try to do things that you think are going to be successful, and you, you get disappointed, and you want to see things happen, and sometimes they, they don't happen. And, and when that happens, sometimes you can feel locked in. Like, this is a burden I have to bear. And it's like, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but you don't always want to do it sometimes. And I haven't felt like that lately, but I've gone through seasons of that before. And I think what's going on there, partly, you know, when a pastor, when an elder deals with that, is it's, it's a case of forgetting. It's a, it's a case of forgetting of, of why we're doing what we're doing. You don't love the church just because you love the church. Um, you love the church because you love Jesus. If you get that reverse, if you get, you know, well, I love the church and so, I, and so I'm passionate about Jesus. I'm just passionate about church ministry. If that's your first thing, your love will eventually grow into frustration because it doesn't matter what church you serve. <laughs> the church will disappoint you at one point or another. It doesn't have to be a great moral sort of failure. It's just we're human. We're, we're weak. And so you always have to put your love for Christ first if you're going to love the church properly. The sort of shepherds that Peter is, is calling us to be here is to be the sort of shepherd who is selfless. And our example of that is, is found in Christ. Um, in John 10, 11, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, obviously, Jesus did that in a very ultimate sort of way on the cross, but all those who are serving as his under-shepherds are also called to that sort of sacrificial, selfless sort of service. And this is why Peter says in verse 2 that these, these elders, these shepherds, should not be doing their work in the pursuit of dishonest gain, but rather they should be eager to serve. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. This sort of expectation of what a pastor, of what an elder is supposed to be, is also 
um, detailed in First Timoth Timothy 3 and Titus 1, this idea that the pastor and elder is not in this ministry for themselves. You see, this has always been a long-standing point of critique and condemnation uh, on the part of God towards the leaders of his people when, when they start doing it for themselves, when they're in it for themselves. In Ezekiel 34, verses 2 through 4, he gives this prophecy to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So thinking about the leaders of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So it's kind of like the negative side of what not to do. This kind of informs me as a pastor, as those who would be elders of what we're supposed to be like. We're not in this for ourselves. We're supposed to be taking care of the sheep, looking out for their concerns. And we shouldn't be harsh or brutal. We need to be gentle and kind. Again, following after the example of Christ. Now, you know, no one here right now is an elder. And so when you're looking at these verses, you might think, okay, well, how is this relevant to me? Well, it's relevant to you because even if you will never be an elder, you'll never be a pastor, you always need to be on guard on, and on the lookout in terms of those who would be in positions of church leadership. Um, because... The fact is, is outside the bounds of this local church, there's lots of famous pastors who, um, as their ministry goes on, make, it becomes clear that they're in it for themselves. They're just in it for their own fame and their own enrichment. You need to be wary of those, those pastors and following their lead. Also, you have to be on guard, because the fact is, is you may not always be here in this local church. You may move someplace else. That's something that God has taught me just in tending this flock here is like, you only have people for a time. They're not going to be here forever. Some, some of you have been here a long time, so maybe you will be here for your whole life, but a lot of times people move someplace else, life changes. Wherever you go, where are you going to be looking for in a pastor, in a team of elders? One day, I, I won't be here. Either if I serve here my whole life, I'll die and eventually have to replace me. Um, not, you know, I could get hit by a car tomorrow. You just don't know. You need, or God calls me elsewhere. I don't want that to happen. I love being here. But you just have to be prepared in thinking about what should we expect from pastors. And if we do come to a place where we have lay elders, what do we expect of our lay elders here at the church. Um, and this is not just for your own sake, because, I mean, you do want to guard and protect your own spiritual well-being, but this is for the well-being of the church. This is what it means to be the body of Christ as we're looking for the, out for the welfare of the entire body. So an elder, a pastor, is not to be selfish. They're also not to be um, bossy basically. They're not supposed to be lording their authority over all others. And it's at this, this point that you recall Jesus' model of leadership that he gives to his disciples in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. He says to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the expectation of all, of all disciples, that um, in whatever we do, we should do our ministry with the heart of a servant, not 
with the heart of someone that just wants to grab authority and boss people around. And it's especially important for elders and pastors to have this mindset of servant leadership because they're supposed to be the models for everyone else. If you have elders and pastors who are just like, oh yeah, I'm the sheriff in town. I want you to do this, that, and the other. Well, guess what? That's going to go down the whole chain. Anyone that's in any position of authority in the church. And it might even spread into the homes where husbands will act in that sort of domineering sort of way. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. That's not what Christian leadership looks like. Christian leadership looks like being a servant to others. Paul in in instructing Timothy, who was an elder in 1 Timothy 4.12, tells him of how he needs to be an example to others. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then turning to, to verse 4, we see what Peter really is setting before pastors and elders as they persevere in their ministries. What he sets before them is the promise of Christ's return. He tells them the chief shepherd will appear and he's going to give you your crown of glory. And, and just to look at that first part here, that chief shepherd, that's emphasizing the fact that we are just under shepherds. We're no replacement for Jesus. And that's something that you who are non-elders need to be careful of is not lifting up anyone who's a pastor or an elder to a height where they're basically becoming Jesus for you in your spiritual walk. We're just servants. We're just under-shepherds. We're not Jesus. You shouldn't look at us in that sort of way. From our own vantage point, as those who are under-shepherds, we have to be prepared. We're going to answer to the chief shepherd. It's his judgment that, that counts. How are we going to be evaluated in his eyes, I'm not, interested, I'm not concerned about how I'm going to be evaluated in the eyes of others. What is he going to say on that final day when I stand before him? And, I'm, and then just to kind of consider this more generally, that should be everyone's concern. Everyone, everything that we do as a church is looking forward to Christ's return. That, that should be the Christian outlook. Sadly, it's not always the Christian outlook. As an Advent Christian church, that's what we emphasize, that everything we do is in anticipation that Jesus is returning. Is he going to find us busy doing his work, being faithful to the task that he's called us to? But that's what pastors and elders are thinking about. It's like, am I being faithful to the task that he's called me to? And if we have been, if we have been selfless, if we have been servants, then what we can anticipate is that we're going to share in that glory which he's going to be bringing. Peter says that you'll receive the crown of glory. Now he opened up his letter here in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, talking about how we all share in an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so what Peter's talking about here is something that's not of this current age, of this current world, but of what is... is he's talking about something that is of the world, of the age to come. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25, of how we ought to set our eyes on that approaching reward. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. It's with the prospect of, in, of receiving that crown that will last forever, of that inheritance that will last forever, that pastors and elders, leaders of the church, are able to brush aside the temptation of seeking out their own selfish gain because they know that they have their reward in Christ. They don't need to clamor for, for riches in this world today. And then in verse 5, Peter turns basically to everyone else. It says, to those who are younger. And it's not just talking about age. It's also talking about those who are younger in the faith. Basically, it's just those who are not elders. He says, you need to submit to your elders. Now, that can be a really uncomfortable thing for people. The idea of submitting 
to someone else. But if pastors and elders are being faithful in their task, if they're looking out for the welfare of their sheep, then it should be something that we would gladly submit to. If, if a pastor or an elder comes to you and says, hey, like I've, I've been seeing like this in your life and I'm, I'm kind of concerned about that, that should be a welcome sort of comment because you want that sort of help. Because the fact is all of us, me included, like we don't see all the weak points in our lives. We, we kind of look at the world like this and someone else will, will point out, well, what about that? That's the role that a pastor and elder is supposed to play. And also the elders and pastors of, of churches are, are supposed to be kind of leading the way and saying this is what we believe that a lo- our local church is supposed to be doing. And in response, everyone else in the congregation should be rising up and saying, okay, we're going to go do that because this is what our elders and our pastors believe that we need to do. Now, I think the reason why we are uncomfortable with submission, one, one reason may be because we're afraid. We're afraid of opening ourselves up to being abused because there are those who have been in church leadership before um, who have hurt, hurt others from their position of authority. Um, we see this in the news, sadly, on a fairly regular basis. Um, but that shouldn't preclude us from submitting to those who are good shepherds. It's like, you know, if, if you see a doctor who, who commits malpractice, you might be nervous about going to any other doctors, but you understand rationally that just because there's one doctor who, who's committed malpractice, that doesn't mean that all doctors commit malpractice, that all doctors are bunk. So that might be one reason why we might not want to submit to pastors, to elders, because there's just a fear. And especially if you have been hurt before, that can be a lot, that can be very difficult to overcome. The other issue, though, is it could be an issue of pride. So Peter's basically addressed elders and telling them essentially not to be prideful, and so far as he says, not to be selfish, don't be lording your authority over others. But those in, in the rest of the congregation, they can be prideful too and saying, I don't want to submit to anybody. But again, that's not the way of Christ. Because the way of Christ calls all of us to humility. In verse 5, Peter says, all of you, so elders and non-elders, he says, clothe yourselves in humility. And the idea here is that you're not pretentious. You're not self-absorbed. Rather, there's this model of, of seeking the best each other and responding positively to your leaders when they're, when they're faithful to the call that God has called them to. And Peter references here Proverbs 3 verses 34. He says, he mocks saying of God, God mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. God favors the humble. And continuing in verse 6, Peter emphasizes this favor when he tells Christians in verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. We're all called to humility and we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And the idea here is that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand not so that we would be humiliated for the sake of being humiliated, for just the sake of being low, but rather so that God would be the one that lifts us up. That whole outlook on life is completely contrary to a world that's all about self-promotion. In our society today, you feel like you have to get ahead. You've got to make a big name for yourself. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. Peter says, humble yourself. Don't worry about promoting yourself. God will lift you up. Just be humble. And this aligns with what Jesus has taught his disciples in Luke 
14, verses 10 through 11. He says, But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there's a lot of practical benefit in that advice. Like, if you go to a party or something, like, don't sit right next to the boss. Take a seat further away because, hey, it's a lot better deal if you get moved up rather than they're like, what are you doing here? Like, get back. Like, you don't want that to happen. That's embarrassing. So there's some real practical wisdom in what Jesus is saying here. But we understand that Jesus is talking about more than just our day-to-day circumstances. He's talking about the fact that if we humble ourselves... That when God comes, when Christ returns, we will be exalted from our humble position. This assurance brings encouragement to us, I think, both in our life together as a church family, because um, a lot of us do things that might get overlooked. Um, There's so many needs in the church, and not all of them are recognized or celebrated. It'd be impossible to do that completely. But the fact is, God sees all those things. And your humble servants is valued and treasured by Him. And you will be recognized on that day. Everything will be revealed. All the bad things we've done, all the good things that we've done as well. And in the case of those who are in Christ, I think it's going to be a great day of celebration. You can imagine, it won't literally be like this, but it's like a slideshow of like all the great things that God's people have done and all the bad things that all our shortcomings and stuff, those are washed away. Those are in the past. It's going to be a great celebration. It's also encouragement to us, though, this idea of being exalted from a place of, of being humbled because the fact is, is that Christians are going to face persecution and suffering. That's what Peter's been talking about this whole letter. Christians, when they're not, especially when they're not in a Christian society, aren't going to be at the heights of power. They're going to be disempowered. But when Christ returns, we're going to be exalted from that position of, of humility. We're going to occupy positions of authority in God's kingdom. I don't, know, don't ask me what exactly that's going to look like because I do not know, but I know that's the truth. You see, we don't, when, when we face hard things, we have the assurance that God is going to raise us up, even if it takes us and kills us. In Proverbs 14.32, it says, when calamity comes, the wicked are brought down, but even in death, the righteous seek refuge in God. I think that, that proverb is just so striking because at this point, you remember Proverbs is before, it's before Christ comes, so you don't have the clear resurrection hope here manifested in the middle of history with Christ. God's people were under, beginning to understand that there was going to be a general resurrection to come. But even now, at this early point, there's this testimony that those who seek righteousness, who put their trust in God, have a refuge in Him, even in death. And it's because of this assurance that we can give all our anxieties to God. That's what Peter calls us to do. He says, give all your anxieties to Him. Why? Because He cares for you. In Psalm 55, 22, we receive the same invitation. Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. You see, the problem with kind of the mantra of modern society is is that we think we can just help ourselves. We subscribe to a whole bunch of self-help psychology that if you just kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you get your lists in order and do this and that, that you'll be all set. The truth is is that you cannot sustain yourself in the day-to-day and you certainly can't prevent yourself from succumbing to death. We make ourselves promises that we can't keep. It's because of this weakness. It's because of this 
powerlessness that we must entrust our life to God. If we can't entrust ourselves to Him, then we really have no one to turn to. But just because we entrust ourselves to God and we say, okay, I'm putting all my anxieties and leaving it in His, ha- in his hands, just because we're putting all our cares on Him, that doesn't mean that we can just kind of sit back in the lazy boy and just kind of snooze away. We still have to be watchful. We still have to be on guard. In verse 8, Peter says, Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He said this just earlier in the previous chapter, in verse 7, calling us to have this sort of alertness and sobriety. The fact is, is that as we follow Christ today, we still face the assault of the devil. We still face the onslaught of temptation and in wrestling with sin. Even though we have freedom from sin because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The space that we exist right now is the now and not yet of Christ's victory. Because Christ has been victorious, He's conquered sin and death, we do have the Holy Spirit, and so we can walk in the Spirit free from sin, and yet we still wrestle with it, and we still see all kinds of brokenness and evil. We see satanic power at work in this world. It's kind of the reality, of, I've heard it compared to, um, it's like when D-Day happened, in World War II. You could say that's the day that determined the course of the war, but you still had some battles to go on. That's what's happened at the cross with Jesus' death and resurrection. That was D-Day. The course of the war is determined. God will win. But we still have battles to fight today. Revelation 12, verses 9 through 12 um, testifies to this reality. Speaking of, of the devil in the as a great dragon. It says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And then the following verses go into all the trouble that the devil is is creating um, before Christ finally returns. When Peter calls us to be watchful and sober, we have to remember that he's speaking from personal experience here of how he himself faltered as Jesus approached the cross by denying him three times. Now, thankfully, he didn't fall away completely. Um, And what Jesus says in Luke 22 indicates it's because of Christ's intercession for him. In Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. So not just Peter, all the disciples. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So at this point, Peter has turned back Peter Peter stumbled because he denied Christ, but his faith ultimately didn't fail. He did come back. And so now he has turned back, and now he's strengthening his brothers. Of course, he did that in his personal interactions with the fellow disciples, but he's doing this now in this letter that we've been going through. He's He's trying to strengthen us. He's calling us to watchfulness, to be on guard, to, have, to be resolved and standing firm in the faith. And he reminds us of the fact that we're not alone in our battle, but there's others who are going through temptation, who are facing persecution and suffering. And so he says, 
Resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Just as we follow Jesus, Jesus' example of, of being a servant leader, we also follow his example in being resolute in the face of hardship. In Isaiah 57, we have this prophecy given that anticipates Jesus as the suffering servant. And this really gives us kind of an inside look on what the attitude of Jesus was as he was facing the cross. In Isaiah 57, it says, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. That's the sort of attitude that we need to have. We need to have the confidence of knowing that the Sovereign Lord is our help. And that even while we might be embarrassed and abused in this current day, we know we will not be disgraced because we will be redeemed. We will be resurrected. Christ will be revealed to be victorious. And so we stand firm with our face like flint. You know, flint like strikes things. You're just... You're ready to take it because we know that we're not going to be put to shame. But we don't do this in our own strength. Everything from top to bottom is through God's grace and empowerment. As Peter has told us in 1 Peter 4.11, where we serve with God's strength, where we, as we speak with the words that God gives, we're reminded here that the point of all this, of everything that we endure, is not to bring ourselves glory. It's in order that the power and glory of God might be revealed. And so Peter says in verse 11, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's not about our power. It's about his power. In these 11 verses, Peter summarizes much of the substance of what he's been trying to say in this letter. That Christians should be prepared to suffer for Christ. That they have hope in that suffering because Christ has overcome and they belong to the all-powerful God. And Peter closes out this letter both clinging to these truths so that they may ring in our ears while also reminding us that Peter lived a real life in a real particular time and place. And so he touches on some very practical sorts of details. He mentions the fact that he didn't write this letter alone in verse 12, but that Silas helped him in writing it and delivering this letter. Now, the name Silas might be familiar to you. He was also a companion of Paul. Other translations translate the name as Silvanus, but both the same person. And Peter says, this has been a brief letter. And maybe it hasn't felt brief to you, but I guess comparatively, you look at some of Paul's letter, letters, Peter's pretty brief. And he says that the point of everything that he's, he's written in this letter is that we might be encouraged. Remember, Peter's purpose that Christ gave to him was that he would strengthen his brothers, that he would feed the sheep. And Peter says that's been his object here, is to encourage us testifying to the true grace of God. Because that's our encouragement. Our encouragement in the midst of hardship and suffering is this grace that we have in Jesus Christ. This promise that we will be lifted up from the ashes, basically. We will be exalted. We will share in the glory that, that will be revealed when Christ returns. And this enables us to stand fast in it. That's why Peter calls us to, to stand fast in that grace. Stand fast in this grace that empowers us to persevere. And we need that reminder to stand fast because we're liable to forget when despair arises, when we go through hard times. We're liable to forget that Christ is returning, that things won't remain the way that they are, that even if you look like a loser today, you will not be a loser in eternity. Peter also sends greetings from the church in Babylon, and 
It's kind of uh, strange because we don't, we're not aware of a church in Babylon. Um, there could have been, but what most um, commentators believe is that what Peter is actually referring to is Rome and characterizing Rome as, as Babylon. It's kind of that characteristically wayward, depraved city. So he's, he's speaking not just from his own personal self, but he's sending greetings from the church in Rome and from his son, not biological son, his spiritual son, Mark, um, also known by the name John Mark, uh, was a companion for a little while in Paul's journeys until Paul said, I don't have use for this guy. And him and, Paul, him and Barnabas parted ways. Um, but Mark is the, go- the author of the Gospel of Mark. So he sends his greetings from them. And he tells them to greet each other with a kiss of love. Now, Peter's not getting romantic here. That seems a little weird. With a kiss of love? Like, um, most of our guys here probably wouldn't be very comfortable with that. But we have to understand that this is um, an expected, acceptable um, cultural practice. And we still see that today. There's cultures across our world where they'll greet each other with a kiss. The idea here is that what Paul wants them to embrace is, their, is the, the reality of of their relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. That this is, they are a true family. And so they ought to show genuine affection and care for one another. Lastly, he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I don't think this is any throwaway line. In every chapter of his letter, Peter talks about how Christians will suffer. About how Christians will be persecuted even when they do what is good. But Peter says, this is not the occasion for us to repay evil with evil. This is the opportunity, rather, our blessed privilege to join Christ in his suffering. Rejoicing is called for in all circumstances. Peace is the Christian privilege that the world cannot enjoy. Peace belongs to us because we belong to Christ. He has not been defeated. He has overcome all powers and rulers, both human and demonic. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, possessing all authority, and everyone must submit to Him. The judgment is coming. The chief shepherd will appear, and He will gather all who are His to Himself. Do you belong to Him? Do you have that peace? Or do you carry all your anxieties like a terrible weight upon your back? always seething, always lashing out, returning blow for blow, numbing yourself with reckless living. You can give all that up. Jesus will take your burden. He will give you rest. Confess your need for Him and trust that He is enough. Because He is enough. He is enough for every trouble in this world because He was too much for death to contain. He is overcome by the power of His blood. And by that same blood, we shall overcome Satan, his demons, and every evil opponent of this world. Death is no threat because Jesus Christ is our refuge in death. We will awake from our sleep in the grave to a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because God will be with us and we will be with Him because we belong to Jesus Christ. If you say you believe, don't forget why you're here. Don't get distracted. Be alert. 
be sober. We live for God's will. We live under His mighty hand. We grasp for nothing because we trust that we will receive every good thing from Him in the glory which is to come. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank You for inspiring this letter that Peter wrote to the church. We thank You that through His words You continue to speak to us today, encouraging us to stand fast, to stand firm in the midst of suffering and persecution, Thank You, Father, that we don't have to do that in our own strength, but rather that You give us the strength. That You give us the hope, Father, to persevere because Christ persevered and overcame all the evil powers, Father. As we live together as brothers and sisters, as we live together as a church, Father, We pray that we would live humbly with one another. That we would serve one another. That we wouldn't seek our own selfish benefit. We pray that especially for elders and pastors, Father. I pray that for myself, that I would be a good shepherd. Help me to to feed the flock. Put their needs... First and foremost, Father. And Father, I do pray that You would raise up those who would serve as elders and leaders, Father. We, we need that here in, the, in this church, Father. We need that in the church in America, Father. We need good pastors and elders. Raise up these shepherds, Father, so that we can guard ourselves against the predations of Satan. That we can remain faithful unto the end when Your Son, the Chief Shepherd, appears. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1st and 2nd Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.